Good morning to all. I'm so glad you guys came back and it wasn't just a bad night. Anyway, no. Um, I am really excited about this morning. I normally, when I come speak at a ladies' event, um, I've tried before doing all of the spiritual disciplines in one weekend and it's a little intense. And so now I try to pick a couple for each session. Um, this morning we're doing rest and confession and then later we're doing Bible reading and prayer. Um, and I pray about which ones to choose. And what's interesting, as I was telling um, Kara before, is I've never done rest and confession together before. I hope that they, it's not clunky to put them together. Um, so in this teaching, I will have hopefully about 20 minutes talking about rest and then 20 minutes talking about what confession is. And if I go over, then it's going to be really short on confession. So we'll see. Um, Anyway, I, I want to start by telling a story about my kids. Um, this is about my 19-year-old and 17-year-old, but when they were little. Um, I, when I first started sharing this story, I asked them, since they're older, you know, can I share this hilarious story of when you were kids? And they're like, yeah, this is our favorite. And even though I think, I don't know, they're weird in this story, so I'll just get into it. Um, when they were five years old and four years old, they were, my daughter, her name is Celia, she was playing in um, her play kitchen and she was making blueberry pie. And blue, uh, pie is very important in the Ronovic family. We, it's a big deal, we make pie a lot. So she was of course making pie and it was imaginary, it wasn't like a plastic piece, it was all in her head. And she set out a tea party for all of her dolls and all of her animals and she was getting it all set. And her little brother comes in and he says, can I have a piece of pie too? And she goes, no, there's not enough. And he started to cry. And he was seeing, you know, this feast, this imaginary feast being set before all of these teddy bears and dolls. And, and he, there wasn't enough for him. And he was beside himself. And so, of course, I started to intervene. And I'm like, honey, can, can you just give your brother a piece of pie? And she looked at her imaginary pie and she's like, I, I just don't have enough for him. And I'm like, I'm sure if you try really hard, you can imagine that there is more pie. And she's like, but I didn't make enough. And, and in her stubbornness, he's crying his eyes out in the corner. And um, I'm like, can you just pretend to cut another piece? Like, you don't even have to believe it's there. Like, just pretend, go through the actions. And she looked at me and she's like, I don't even have more plates. Like, this, is, this isn't gonna work. And so I hand her an imaginary plate. And I say, take this imaginary plate, put an imaginary piece of pie on it, and give it to your brother. So she, with her you know, stubbornness, she starts dishing up a piece of imaginary blueberry pie onto the imaginary plate. And she looked at her brother knowing she was commanded to do this, but she didn't want to do it. And I said, give him a piece of pie. And then she put a smile on her face and she's like, you can have the very last piece. And she took the imaginary plate with imaginary pie and she shoved it in his face. <laughs> and my son started wailing as imaginary blueberry pie was all over his face and his hair and dripping down on his clothes. Not only that, this was the last piece. There were no more pieces to be given. This was unredeemable. 
So I want to ask you maybe a philosophical or maybe it's a metaphysical question. Did my child sin? Was it technically sinning because technically the pie doesn't even exist? Um, she could say, where's the evidence that I sinned? He's clean. There's no evidence of pie on him. And, and technically, this is an argument between imaginations. My son technically didn't have pie all over his face. My daughter technically gave him the imaginary pie. And I think um, we tend to favor technicalities and ask questions that address technicalities. It's so black and white um, because we're looking for ways to justify ourselves and what we do. Technically, there was no pie on the plate. Technically, I was just thinking about it. I didn't say it. Technically, I was just playing in my head, but it wasn't real. And the thing is, each one of us knows that sin was involved in that fight. We can't say no sin was involved. Your feelings just got hurt. It, it wasn't just feelings. Um, we have this habit of putting everything we cannot see into this ambiguous field of feelings. And, and that's not, that's not correct. Faith is not a feeling. Hope is not a feeling. The Holy Spirit's work in our life isn't just goosebumps. It's not our imagination. The, the fact of the matter is, there is an, a re, there's a reality that exists that we are not able to see with our eyes. And kids get this. We know that right and wrong goes deeper than what we see. What we see is temporal and physical. The reality is that God is trying to help us understand what he's trying to get us to understand. It touches eternity. It touches something like, like touching a wire of electricity. You may not see the current, but it is there. So when we're talking about faith or talking about belief and things that we don't see, I don't want us to just think about feelings. About, about just feeling the right thing. When we talk about hope, we talk about being so certain about something being real that we wait for it with expectation. When we talk about love or forgiveness or kindness or anything abstract, does the fact that they're abstract make them less real? They're more than feelings. For example, um, Jonah in the Bible acknowledged that God wanted to save the Ninevites, but he really wasn't feeling it. Um, you can be annoyed with your spouse as a feeling, but that doesn't mean that what's between you isn't more, more solid than that passing emotion. Feelings are real in the sense that they can be very chemical. They're affected by whether or not you've gotten enough sleep, whether or not you've eaten, and your stress and your hormones, all of those things are impacting it. But love and faith and peace and joy these aren't feelings, it's something real. They don't originate within us in our current chemical struggle, though they interact with it. They're part of eternity. And we can't always see them, but they are there and they come from outside of us. We have trouble describing the abstract and so we give them symbols. So like my wedding ring, um, a couple years ago, um, my husband was working out and he lost his wedding ring out on the ski trail somewhere. We do a lot of cross-country skiing in our family and he was pretty upset about it. Um, we've been married um, 21 years now. This was 19 years when he lost it. 
And that wedding ring was the representation of our love and our marriage. Now, when the ring went missing, what, did I just look at him and be like, well, we had a good run. <laughs> That's too bad. Um, it, it was just a symbol. Um, what we have is much deeper and much more substantial. And even though you can't see it, it is the thing that's real. But if we're gonna talk about what's real, we're going to address what is seen and what is unseen. And that's important because as we talk about rest, we're going to wonder, are we talking about real rest or just kind of the feeling of rest? So I'm the mother of six children. I have zero time to talk about theoretical rest. I, I only have time to talk about rest that is real. I don't have the energy to talk about rest in a philosophical nature. I'm, I'm genuinely tired all the time. Are we talking about taking a nap? Yes. Are we talking about sitting down with your feet up as a discipline? Yes. Are we talking about rest from the worries of your mind? Yes. Are we talking about peace in your soul? Absolutely. When we are talking about rest and the way that God thinks about it, I don't want you to think either or. I want you to think both and. God is all encompassing. He is going to cover all of it, the physical and the spiritual. And a lot of the disciplines are that way. They are physical and spiritual because God doesn't leave one or the other out. He redeems all things. So the passage this morning is taken from Hebrews chapter 3, verses 16 through chapter 4, verse 3. And in Hebrews is probably one of my favorite books. Um, I get into that a lot. It says, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all of those who left Egypt, left, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who believed enter that rest. When I, I first did a really deep study in the book of Hebrews a few years ago, the first question I asked in this passage is, what is rest? How is that term being used? And here rest is described as the promised land for the Israelites. It's a, it's a historical context. And it's interesting that he says that the people in the wilderness were not only given the law of Moses, but they were offered the same good news of salvation through Christ. They had the same thing. I didn't catch that before. So let's rehash that story for a second. God's people were brought out of slavery in Egypt and they were brought into the wilderness and they were brought to the promised land and they decided that the promised land didn't look super practical for them. There was a lot of giants in there and God sent them back into the wilderness. They were given the law and they broke the law pretty much right away. 
We know that the promised land doesn't come from keeping the law. They were offered the promised land, but they did not have faith. It's not that they didn't enter the promised land because they broke the commandments. They didn't enter the promised land because they didn't believe God. And the core of every sin is unbelief in what God has said. The core sin that keeps us away from rest is not believing that God is who he says he is and God will do what he says he will do. The writer of Hebrews is trying to make a point. The gospel isn't anything new. We were never saved through the law. We were always saved through faith. God's faithfulness has always, always been greater than our own. Entering his rest is described as belief. And the writer of Hebrews could have said promised land, but he used the word rest to describe the promised land. And that's really interesting to me. It probably didn't look like rest to them. They were probably like, you know what? We were just slaves for 400 years. We aren't strong enough to have some battles with giants right now. When we believe that God would do what he said he would do, not to just charge in and do it ourselves, not to say, yeah, you know, he's, he's not powerful or capable enough to do what he said he would do. You know, it's going to be left up to me. This is going to be left up to me to keep God's promises for him. And I'm just not strong enough. I can't show off how great God is right now. I'm too tired to make that happen. Practically speaking, I can't make this happen for God right now. I know he promised it, but I just can't make it work. It says, enter his rest. So how does God describe rest over all of scriptures? I am, uh, when we were homeschooling, I was really into classical education. We do timelines a lot in classical um, education. So we're going to do a quick timeline. And to look at the thread of rest through the Bible. So the first peg in our timeline over here is going to, of course, be creation. When God worked for, seven, worked for six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. For six days, he made light and darkness, land and seas, all the birds and bees. And on the sixth day, he made man. And on the seventh day, God rests. And then what happens, as I'm sure a lot of you know this story, Adam and Eve didn't believe God, and they had to leave the garden. We call this the fall. The world and all that is in it became broken. Before the law was given to Moses, so you would think, okay, the first time is in creation. The next time we're going to go to the Ten Commandments, but that's actually not next. Next is actually Abraham. Um, a promise was given to Abraham regarding the promised land. And as you can tell from the book of Hebrews, promised land and rest are pretty synonymous in the Old Testament. So this covenant can be found in Genesis 17. God tells Abram that he will be the father of many nations. He changes his name to Abraham and gives him the promised land to Abraham and all of his descendants. God said that he would do all of that and Abraham would keep the covenant by circumcising himself and all the males in his household on the eighth day. So why the eighth day? Like that's just kind of a weird random number. Um, this might be a little known fact in modern America, but the eighth day of a baby's life is actually extremely important. 
It's the day that their bodies start producing vitamin K. Vitamin K is the vitamin that's necessary for blood to clot properly. And so since a baby doesn't have vitamin K the first week of life, if they've had trauma in the birth, or they were somehow injured or got cut or internal bleeding, they could bleed out. They don't have the, the blood clotting capabilities before then. Um, my friend Sonia, who I talked about last night, she's in, in Chad now, Chad, Africa. And she says on the eighth day in, in Chad, they have a naming ceremony for a baby. They shave the baby's head, all the hair off of the head, and they give the baby a name because that's when the family knows that the baby might live. Um, and, and that's very significant in that culture. The eighth day is the day the bleeding stops. In America, we often give vitamin K shots. In Asia, they give vitamin K drops. In some parts of the world, babies just die that first week if something happens, if they have had any trauma. And so you can logically see how circumcision happened on the eighth day because it was a wound. But also God promised the promised land. That's why it's called the promised land. It's not called the earned land or I did all the things land. It is the promised land. And so God made a promise to a man, to a father, and for lack of a better term, I love this. My daughter's like, what are you gonna talk about the women's retreat? We're gonna talk about circumcision. All right. Um, so to a father, he marked his fatherhood so that every time a baby was made, they would know that child was born under the promise of the covenant. It was a generational marking in its essence. So the first peg is creation. God rested on the seventh day. The next is the peg of the promised land and circumcision on the eighth day. The next peg in the timeline, we have God's people coming out of Egypt, rejecting the promised land and then given the 10 commandments where we have remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So I'll read that for you here. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Here we see the extensiveness of Sabbath rest. First, it's a remembrance of what God has done. It's not doing something for God, it's remembering what God has done. It's something tangible attached of resting to remember that memory of what God has done. And it's for everyone. It wasn't for a particular gender, class, station, or anything. It was like God was closing up every loophole like he was talking to teenagers. There will be no work. Well, what about my wife? No. Well, what about my kids? No. Well, what if I train my animal to work? No. Well, what, if, what about that homeless guy outside the house? No. Can I hire someone to get the work done? No. In this commandment, God emphatically says that rest is for everyone. So the devil's advocate in me is like, okay, let's think about the logistics of this for just a second, because this seems pretty undoable. Like, do nursing mothers get a day off? Like, that doesn't make sense. Do you just, like, not change diapers on that day? Um, 
how, how is rest even possible? There's so much to be done. My husband has, uh, has a saying that I'll sleep when I'm dead. He just works all the time. And um, I mean, that's how it feels some, day, some days, of I'll sleep when I'm dead. There, it's, there's no time to rest. And the only way that Sabbath truly can be t kept, to truly rest, to be that still, is to be dead. It's something to look forward to. We will rest then. So let's get this straight. Um, Israel never kept the Sabbath. They were horrible at it. They looked at the logistics and they couldn't figure it out. They couldn't do it. And so what they did with all of their guilt of not being able to keep the Sabbath is they made all of these mini laws that God never gave them to sort of appease their consciences. That like you can walk this far, but you can't walk this far. Um, instead of letting the law expose their inability or, or their sinfulness before God, they brainstorm ways to sort of get rest, but not really, but only for some people. To, they didn't let the law kill the self-righteousness within them. They just found a new way to sort of be self-righteous. So we'll move along in the timeline. We have creation where God rested. We have Abraham circumcising on the eighth day. We have the all-encompassing Sabbath for everyone. We're gonna go on to talk about Jesus and the Sabbath. But first I wanted to say, and I speak from experience, whenever I quote unquote take a Sabbath, uh, we're one of the few farms in Minnesota who doesn't harvest on Sundays. That's the one day my husband gets to sleep and go to church and take naps. And um, this time of year, my husband works 20 hours a day and sleeps four hours a day, six days a week. And then on Sunday, he just sleeps. And he's an elder in our church, and so he comes to church, and then he goes home and he rests. And here's what I'm reminded of when our family takes a Sabbath, though not the fullness of the Sabbath. I'm always reminded I'm not God. When I see weeds grow in my garden, when I let the dishes just stay undone, when I sit and watch the sunset, I'm reminded I, I'm not God. I don't cause the sun to rise and set. I'm not holding the world together. I'm being held by God. This remembrance is, is a way to love our neighbors. Um, and, and when we take a Sabbath on the farm, it's um, people ask, what's it like living on a family farm? And I don't know if you guys have ever I'm really into sh the show The Crown about Queen Elizabeth and, and all these things. I'm kind of a royal, royal um, junkie, which is my confession. We're getting way ahead, all right? Um, but it's kind of like that, where um, there's a saying in that show that the crown always wins. The crown is always going to have the last say. And on the farm, the farm always wins. The farm always, always gets the last day. If there's any, anyone who gets the time, who gets the effort, the farm comes first. And if, if we didn't have that Sunday, that day to rest, I don't know if we would still be married. Because it's one day I know my husband is home and the farm has no access to him. His work has no access. He is just ours. That is, that's a comfort to us, that has been helpful for us. 
to give that gift of rest. It's a communal thing. Sometimes you can't get rest on your own. You need someone else to give you rest. It's not individual, it's communal. It's not like I walk in my garden and say, oh, look, there's a beautiful strawberry. I'll have to pick it tomorrow when I'm allowed to pick strawberries. It's not like that. It's, it's more like I'm, I'm allowed to rest. I'm allowed to look to Christ. No one can take that from me. So we ask ourselves, does it, does it make you feel guilty to use that gift that God gave you? Is it that hard to believe that God is for you and for your good? It's humbling and yet sweet. Honestly, it's one of the most difficult parts of the Christian life, believing that God wants to give you something good. And that can't be right. I didn't earn it. I didn't get all my work done. I'll just wait until I've actually earned this rest. No, resting is one of the best ways to remember that God's grace isn't something we earn. It's something that we are given. We are promised it. And it's not for us, it's for him. That's when Jesus, that, that part of the timeline, he was looking at all of these mini laws and he's like, you don't even understand what they're for. He had no interest in keeping the mini laws. He knew that there was something deeper in this Sabbath rest. But the curious part of me wonders why we traditionally rest on Sunday now. I mean, on the farm we pick Sunday because that way we can go to church and it just fits nicely in our community schedule. You will find literally no place in the Bible that requires us to rest on Sunday. What, why do we do that? Why, what, when did that happen in the church? And I, and I was just curious about that. And I knew it started at the very beginning, traditionally, but the first theologian I could find who actually wrote about why the church does this was in the early 100s, the second century. His name was Justin Martyr. And so here's kind of a short summary of what he said, excuse me, of what he said. He said, um, Jews celebrate the Sabbath on Saturday, Christians celebrate on Sunday because of the resurrection which makes sense. It's the day Jesus rose from the grave after his death on the cross. But he goes further, and this is, this is really interesting. He uses the discussion of the Sabbath to dig into the circumcision party that was hammering away at Christians in the early church. The, this was kind of a faction of Christians within the early church. Um, it talks about it all in the book of Acts and, and Galatians. That there were Jews that were saying, okay, um, Gentiles can become Christians, that's totally fine, but they should probably be circumcised first. Like they should probably become Jews first and then you become a Christian. That's the proper order of things. And there was a big Jerusalem council in Acts 15 and they kind of debate this and talk about it. And, and honestly, I kind of see what the circumcision party's points. I mean, being circumcised is actually in the Bible. It's actually commanded. It says you can't get into the promised land without it. And, and we, you know, they were saying we have one job in this covenant. We have one. It's, it's to be circumcised. It's in the scriptures. Are you saying we shouldn't believe scriptures? Are you saying we should just believe certain parts? I mean, that was the argument the circumcision party was, was coming up with. You can't just be saved through faith alone. We have to hold up our end of the bargain. What do we do with all this stuff God has told us to do? 
Paul deals with this topic in the entire book of Galatians over and over again. And apparently this was a, an issue a few decades later when Justin Martyr, the theologian, was writing about this. And he says this, and I'm going to paraphrase this. It kind of blew my mind a little bit. Not only was circumcision a sign of the promised progeny, the, the promised child to come, but since that child did come, Christ himself, who kept both parts of the covenant, both as a circumcised male and the God who is bringing into the promised land, he did both, all the parts of the covenant keeping. And not only that, he came back from the dead on the eighth day. And when you look at Holy Week, this is what the early theologians did, um, like Palm Sunday represented the first day of creation. And then Monday was the second day. And if you look at what Jesus did every day of Holy Week, it represents a day of creation until we get to day six when God made man, the son of man was crucified on the cross. And then on day seven when God rested, Jesus lay dead and perfectly still fulfilling the Sabbath. And then on day eight is resurrection day. That's where we live. We live in the era of day eight on the, the biblical calendar. But, but Justin Martyr goes further than that. He says that circumcision was a sign pointing to the redemption of Christ, and it does not, in fact, save you. He said, if you claim that we are saved through circumcision, then you're speaking of the doctrine of salvation, of God's rest, as being something that is only for men. And God would not leave out women. He was talking about that in the early 100s. God does not leave women out of his rest. He said, attaching circumcision to salvation would take women completely out of the theology of rest, and God does not do that because it's all-encompassing. It is for everyone, and no one gets left out. And we know that God's rest, God's redemption, God's grace, the belief that God is the one at work, we are merely being witnesses to his mighty hand to save. And when we're talking about holy rest, God's rest in the promised land, no one gets there by the law. So when we start attaching laws or favoring keeping this law over this law, modifying them, we start showing favoritism. Rest is for men and women, manservant and maidservant. When we start attaching Jesus plus circumcision plus getting this work done plus getting this work done, we start proclaiming the doctrine of salvation to those who are able. And we all have our favorite able discussions, our favorite laws. I'm good at this law, so this must be a, an important one. I'm not very good at this law. I'm not very good at, you know, gluttony or not resting or all of the, you know, like I gossip a little bit, but, you know. Justin Martyr destroys the argument by saying the resurrection happens on the eighth day when the promised land is given. We don't deny that God has created works for us to do, but the Jewish mindset is to work six days and earn your rest. The Christian mindset is that we start at the eighth day and we work out from that. We live in the age of the eighth day. 
everything moving forward there. Okay. So I have left nine minutes for the second top. That was really bad. All right. We'll talk a little bit about this. If you can mentally switch gears with me. This is, so the, we talked about the spiritual discipline of rest, which I believe all the other disciplines flow out of. It's an important one. You're allowed to sleep. The, the discipline of confession is one that has become very precious to me because it is one of forgiving and being forgiven. And that's something that I think in the church is a very awkward thing for us. We tend to think about it in terms of conflict resolution. Um, there's several things of, um, in families, we all have our rules for the fight of what you're allowed, you know, how far you can go, where it's too far, how you forgive. In our family, um, I married into a family where they, they don't say I'm sorry ever. They just be sorry, like it's an actions thing. It's very stoic Norwegians. I moved into really more, I came from a more maybe emotional, we say all the things. And so like we had to like learn, I'd have to say, okay, I actually want you to say the words. And from my part, I had to learn that he actually was sorry and didn't actually say, you know, say the words sometimes. It's, um, it's a communication thing. We think of it that way. And there's this, this um, misunderstanding between how healing comes about I, I've told this story on our podcast a couple times, this kind of theoretical story if, and I'll throw my friend Katie under the bus again, um, who I do the podcast with. Let's say, theoretically, um, Katie runs over my foot with her car. And whether or not it was an accident, it doesn't matter. But she ran over my foot, my foot is broken. And she comes out of the car and she's like, oh my goodness, Gretchen, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry I broke your foot. This is terrible. Will you please forgive me? And I say, absolutely. And then I'm like, okay, maybe we should probably head to the hospital. And, she'll, and she looks at me and she's like, but why, you forgave me. I mean, it doesn't work that way. The, the foot is still legitimately broken. Or would I go to Katie and say, all right, you broke my foot, now you gotta fix it. No, I'd probably go to someone else. I probably wouldn't ask her to fix it. She's not very skilled in fixing foots or setting feet or setting them of that nature, that's where the doctrine of vocation comes in. So I think a lot of times, when it comes to forgiving and being forgiven, we, um, we think that the person who is apologizing must fix us. And that's really hard to do um, because they're not able. Um, recently, um, back in February, my father-in-law passed away very unexpectedly. And it really, um, it shook our family. It shook our farm. It shook everything. And um, I remember talking with my pastor afterwards, um, after the funeral, and saying, I'm, I'm kind of mad at him. It wasn't like an accident. He just didn't go to the doctor and was a stubborn Norwegian farmer who just died. And I was really angry. And, um, and he's like, and, and remember, his, his sin, his offense, whatever he did, is completed at the foot of the cross. 
that's where it lives now. And that was very helpful for me that Jesus took that on. He takes it all on himself. You know, before the Reformation happened, the ability to forgive someone was only given to priests. Priests could say, you are forgiven or God has forgiven you. Um, now, at post-Reformation, in the Protestant tradition, we have the priesthood of believers where we all get to share God's forgiveness with others. We get to tell someone, do you know God's forgiveness? Do you know that? I know this is always a tension in our house of do you just have to say, because I mean sometimes, you know, my kids will be like, fine, I'm sorry. Are you happy now? And just, just wanting that instant healing. And healing is sometimes a process. But that, that forgiveness is always instant at the foot of the cross. It's always there because God has always taken it on. And confession isn't always negative things. We confess true things. As I talked last night about the Apostles' Creed, and um, which um, pretty much all denominations affirm, as um, Rich Mullins has put to music, um, we confess, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I confess what I believe is true. This is who God is. This is the Father. This is the Son. This is the Holy Spirit. This is who God is. That's a confession. We confess what is true. Martin Luther had a phrase that um, the, the way, the method of doing theology was to call a thing what it is. So you, you call God who he is. You call sin what it is. You call redemption what it is. That is the spiritual discipline of confession. And when we apologize, we are calling our sin what it is. When we forgive someone, we are calling God's blood and righteousness what it is. This is forgiven in light of the cross. I, I found this to be really helpful in friendships. Um, my friend Katie was the first one to do this for me. Um, people are confessing all the time. You probably don't even know that they're confessing to you. Um, let, me, let me give an example. Um, like let's say um, I lost my temper on my kids and I'm going up to one of my friends and be, I'm just trying to think of something that actually happens. And so I, I look at, and I say, you know, she says, how was your morning? And I'm like, you know what? My toddler was just getting at me and I, they were disobeying and I yelled and it was bad. And oh, I'm just having a morning. And so she, she can go a couple different ways in her response. One way is to downplay the sin and say, well, you know, it happens to all of us. You know, it, kids are resilient. Everyone loses their temper from time to time. Um, that isn't that what motherhood is. You know, I mean, you, she could kind of downplay it a little bit. That's not really calling a thing what it is. What I did was wrong. Um, or she could totally shame it and say, I mean, do you need to like go to counseling? Do we need to get CPS over to your house? I mean, should you even be a mother? Like this is, you should have thought about whether or not you could hold your temper before you had children. 
that was, that was not a good idea. I mean, just deep shame. Um, your kids are gonna be messed up. Do you know how harmful this is? Um, that's another way to go about it. What my friend Katie did is she absolved me and she said, when I was telling her about my morning, she said, Gretchen, you know, the blood of Jesus covers that sin. And that was something to point me back to Christ, to point me back to the cross. She wasn't saying what you did was fine. She wasn't saying what you did was unforgivable. She said what I did was forgiven. It was forgiven in light of the cross. Um, bringing that into friendships, bringing that into our family of pointing people who are wrestling with their sin back to the cross and being able to call a thing what it is, um, it's transformational for relationships. It's transformational for my own spiritual life to be pointed to Christ every single time I screw up because it keeps happening. Um, there are methods and, and ways of growth that we can do. Some, some things are more a struggle for sometimes than other times, but to have a friend who points you to Christ and, and absolves you and says, you know the blood of Christ covers that sin too. It does that too. Um, I'm so grateful for it. Um, why don't we pray? I put in um, the discussion questions. We don't really have discussion question time, but as you are journaling through in between times, journaling after this event, or if you are sitting at your tables, if it's like a weird lull, you can bring out discussion questions um, to talk about what are some of the challenges of rest? What are some of the challenges of confession? Um, I think sometimes being denied forgiveness under the blood of cross can be sometimes the most joy feeling. It's, it's denying Christ, Christ's blood does not cover what you did. That was a bridge too far. Um, I found that when I forgive other people um, I was talking to a friend of mine who was struggling to forgive her husband of something. And I said, you know what? You don't, you don't have to manufacture forgiveness. You just have to agree with God's forgiveness. That's what forgiveness is. You don't have to always feel it. You don't always have to say, okay, I don't know how to create this out of my gut. I have nothing. I am broken. I've got the broken foot. I've got the wounds that need healing. But to say, I agree with God's forgiveness. And I believe that is right. And that is good. That is how we forgive one another. Um, and and that, that has been helpful for me. So if, if, you, if those questions are helpful for you, you can use them. If you prefer them more privately, that is just fine too. But I will pray before our break. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your rest and for your forgiveness. As we think about spiritual disciplines and your word and your prayer and access to you and all of the ways that you have given us access to 
your love and your wisdom. Lord, help us to grow in our dependence of you, of recognizing that we cannot manufacture our rest, we cannot manufacture forgiveness for ourselves or for other people. That is all a gift that you bestow on us and we accept in belief. Lord, I, I pray that you, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief, help us where we struggle to believe, have mercy on us as we deal with all of um, wrestling through each one of these disciplines. I pray for these ladies that you would minister to them individually and as a group you know Lord, what each one of these women is dealing with in this season of her life. And I pray that you would bring rest to it, that you would bring forgiveness to it, and that you would understand the depth and all-encompassing nature of your grace. In your name, amen.